0: Well, good morning. You can sit. <laughs> I feel so honored by, the, uh, by just allowing, um, just for your invitation, allowing me to be here. Uh, yesterday, I had a great chance to meet with uh, Fresh Hope uh, and just to see what God's doing in the midst of uh, uh, some movements that are happening here in Australia, uh, as well as what God is doing at, at, at your church. I feel like I'm stuck in this kind of weird time continuum. Uh, Part of it is Australia is how many, it's like a day ahead of us. So I'm still like kind of mixed up between which day it is. And then I see this church as like a church that I planted 10 years ago. And so you guys are like the future. And so I feel like I'm I'm going back younger and going forward. And then I see this group here with with the diversity of what heaven's going to look like. And so this is like a weird place for me. I feel like I'm in the past, present, and future all at once. And so no better place than to be in Australia. You know, when I looked outside, it's like, this is what heaven's going to look like. So I think I made it to heaven. So maybe I'm actually dead. Maybe I'm not even alive. But I'm so glad to be here, guys. Um, I am uh, from Southern California. Uh, I was actually born in Korea um, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, I came to the States uh, as a little boy. And uh, I remember uh, coming to America, one of the challenges, uh, again, I think many of you who, have, who are bicultural could identify. you're not sure which country you're from, you know, because there's a part of you that's from your heritage, the other part is, is the place that you live. And so I grew up in Southern California. Uh, back, we didn't have a lot of Koreans uh, when I was growing up. Now, you go to LA, you see Koreatown, you see Koreans everywhere. Uh, back when I came back in the early 70s, there was hardly any Koreans. And I remember um, when I would see another Korean, or my parents would see another Korean. We, like when we were little kids, uh, they would take us to Disneyland. And so we would go to Disneyland, and my parents would meet another Korean, and they would get so excited. They would go, come, let's have dinner together, let's be best friends. Because I, there weren't that many. And nowadays, there's so many, you just run away whenever you see a Korean. But it's, 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 it's grown rapidly in the U.S., uh, the Korean community. But the thing that really has encouraged me is uh, I've been able to kind of, uh, I was a pastor in a Korean American church. I was a, uh, for those of you who speak Korean, I was a Do Sanim, okay? So I, I grew up in uh, being a youth pastor, and then I was an English ministry pastor. And then about 20 years ago, so this dates me way back, I planted a multi-ethnic church in Washington, D.C., And that church now has celebrated their 20th anniversary, and I I got to celebrate that last year. I got to be their speaker for that, and the church is growing and thriving. And then about 15 years ago, I planted another church in L.A., and that church is also another multi-ethnic church. And so I see kind of the future of what God can do here as well, and the diversity. And, And it, to me, is the most exciting thing, because if you want to see what the kingdom of God looks like, look at this. This is what the kingdom of God should be, and so I, I want to encourage you. My my job here just simply to uh, to listen, to learn, hopefully to encourage, uh, maybe to inspire, but to think ahead of what God can do through you. And I know uh, one thing I just want to say about Pastor Steve. You guys have an amazing pastor. I mean, I am so blessed. He's a young guy. I wish uh, when I was your age, I I had the the maturity and and the leadership. Uh, This guy is amazing. So I just want to say thank you, Steve. So um, anyway, by the way, he didn't pay me to say that. So so anyway, I just want to lead us in a word of prayer together and go right into our, our talk this morning. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be with your people. And Father, I realize it doesn't matter where I am with other believers, whether I'm here in Australia, whether we are in L.A., uh, whether we're in Korea or China or India or Africa, that to be with other believers, we are actually with family, brothers and sisters in, under the same Father. And so, Father, we recognize, Lord, even though we have differences, we have different cultures, different backgrounds, that we're still... Uh, part of the same family of God and so with that Lord um, I thank you for allowing me to serve uh, these groups here and I just pray Lord through this uh, message that you would use to remind us of your goodness to remind us of your faithfulness that you have a purpose and a plan for us that you call us into mission with you and that mission sometimes can be hard and challenging and difficult times where we feel like we want to give up, but Lord, that you have a purpose for us. For all things do work together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So Lord, remind us of that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to um, 2 Corinthians. Now I have to say, instead of having your Bibles, if you have your cell phones, open up your Bible app. (laughs) Go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and that's going to be the text that I'll be uh, speaking on this morning. Um, And I'm going to address both groups simultaneously, because I think what I'm going to share, I think is going to be applicable to those of you who are in the front lines of pastoral ministry, who have have been church planters, uh, who are going through some rough times, planting and those of us who are, who are part of a church because everything I'm going to share from, from God's word I think will have relevance in how uh, what, what God calls us to do and to be especially when life becomes difficult so it's 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 and we're going to be looking a little bit uh, later in verses 8 through 11 but if I were to make a statement I think all of you would agree and this statement is applicable to every generation uh, to every nation to every person And that statement is simply this, that life is hard. I think everyone would agree that if, um, I I remember I spoke in a, a country in Vietnam, and I spoke in India, and I spoke in some of the other, and they said if there's one message you can preach that's universal, it's the message that suffering is part of life. Because every culture, every person can identify that, that, that life is challenging at times. And life can become really discouraging. And here's the reality. It seems like as we get older, that life doesn't get easier. It gets more difficult. And, you know, the challenge of even having technology is that technology is supposed to make our lives easier. But it actually makes us even more challenging and difficult. And the thing about life being harder is, as, as we deal with life, that I think that the challenges, the difficulties, struggles of life is actually part of God's curriculum. That God uses the challenging parts of our lives to remind us of what we need to be in Christ and what we need to be dependent on. And here's the challenge. If we don't deal with the curriculum well, we fail in life. And when we fail in life, we give up. And one of the things that I want to encourage you today is this. No matter how difficult life is, that you need to get back up. And I want to tell you a story about a woman. Um, she was actually a South Korean woman. Uh, New York Times, by the way, uh, uh, had an article about her. And it was this older elderly woman. And uh, the title of the article in the New York Times was uh, on this one unique word. Uh, it's sort of a, a kind of a slang word in Korea. Uh, I think it's okay? Has anybody ever heard of this term before? Okay, some of you are, okay, now you're going to learn this new word, okay? This is going to be part of our vocabulary. But this woman um, was uh, an elderly woman. I'll just give you a backstory. Uh, her name was Cha uh, sa Soon, and she was 69 years old. And she was a widow who lived in this remote village in, in Korea. And she wanted to learn how to drive because she, had, she hadn't, hadn't driven before. And the reason she wanted to take her uh, to drive was so, so she can take her grandkids to the zoo. Now, what a, what a noble desire, right? And so, uh, she, you know, she had a limited educational background. So, the, the most difficult, challenging thing about the, the driving was that she had to take a driver's test. She had to take a written exam. And so, because of her limited skill, she actually left uh, school when she was young. Uh, she had a real difficult time. So, Every time you took the test, it was a 50-question multiple-choice test. You had to pay $5, okay? So she failed the test once, twice, three times. She failed 959 times. (laughs) Every time paying $5. Now imagine this woman who goes every day to, to pass this test, and her desire was simply to drive for her grandkids. Well, on the 960th time, time, she finally passed. And, and she it was able to pass. She got her license. Well, Hyundai uh, Motors had heard about her story. So they actually went and gave her a brand new car, which is probably more than the cost of all the tests. And they, they told this woman that they admired her perseverance that she was knocked down so many times and she was willing to get back up. Well, that word, sa-jung-o-gi, is actually a contraction of of, of four different words. Uh, And so the New York Times piece uh, talked about this word. And sa means four. uh, jun means to be knocked down. O means five. And gi means to rise up. And so the idea is, knock down four times, get back up on the fifth. Now, where did that, sort of slang come from? Well, it actually came from uh, a Korean boxer. Back in 1977, uh, Korea was still a very developing country, and the thing that sort of unified Korea back in the 70s was this sort of, uh, the, the, this boxer. His name was Hong Su Han, and in 1977, he won the Super Bantonweight championship by um, winning, it was actually all over the world. Um, he became a world champion. But in the bout, something happened. He was boxing this, this, uh, uh, the other gentleman, and he got knocked down once. And he got knocked down twice. He got knocked down three times. Probably in the modern rules of boxing, by the time that he got knocked down the fourth time, they would have probably called it a match. But instead, he got up and did the most miraculous thing. He actually swung his, his uh, boxing glove, hit the other guy, knocked the other guy down, and he won the match so this this uh, word simply means to get knocked down four times and to get back up on the fifth you know i think for us as christians there's no greater word for us than to be reminded that god calls us to be people who will be willing to be knocked down and to get back up god calls us that we need to be people that are willing to persevere through some of the most difficult, challenging parts of life. And so what I want to share with you is how do you get back up when you feel knocked down? You now, Steve was telling me that you guys planted this church five, uh, it was five years ago. This is their 50th anniversary. And I believe that part of the challenging part of church planting is that there's going to be times where you feel like instead of standing back up again, that you want to just stay down. So how do you get back up when when life gets difficult? Uh, Especially for those of you who are church planters, there are times where you you feel like you're constantly discouraged. You look at um, your attendance, or you look at your finances, or you look at the challenging things of of raising a family, as well as evangelizing those around you, and and, and people are so non-responsive. And if there is one word that sort of kind of summarizes that, is the, the word discouragement. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting in the English. The word discouragement literally means a deprivation of courage. You think about the word courage, and what discouragement is, is to take the courage out of you. The biblical idea for discouragement is, is actually a Greek word called athumeo. And that word simply means to be disheartened. It's to take the courage out of something. And when you think about it, it's, uh, if I were to describe it, it would be the, getting the wind knocked out of you. That's a, that's a s- slang that, that, that we have used. When, I remember when I was playing um, in uh, middle school, uh, we are playing American football. Uh, that's a little different than here, I guess, right? It's like rugby. And so we had the, the football, and I was running, and somebody uh, pushed me in the back, and I landed on the ball uh, on my stomach, and for a brief second... I couldn't breathe. I, th- I thought I was going to die. And <laughs> people were coming around me, and they said, just calm down, just take a deep breath. And they said, you just got the wind knocked out of you. Well, that's the expression here. It's when we feel like somebody punches us in the gut, and we feel like we can't breathe anymore. If you've ever felt like that in life, that happens through a lot of different circumstances. It happens when, when you're uh, challenging relationships with your parents or with your friends or with, at work maybe things like what you're hearing all around globally with the war in Syria or you hear about about, but the things that are happening in North Korea sometimes economically socially politically we feel like we get the uh, the wind knocked out of us Um, one of my pastors that I used to uh, work under his name is Chuck Swindoll and wrote a book many years ago and he said this which I think rings true he says I seriously doubt there is subject any more timely than discouragement. So many folks that I I meet are playing out their entire lives in the minor key. There is a grinding discouragement that follows an unachieved goal or a failed romance. Some are discouraged over their marriage which began with such promise and now seem hopeless. Lingering ill health can discourage and demoralize its victims, especially when the pain won't go away. And who can't identify with the guy who gave it his best shot And yet took it on the chin from a self-appointed critic. You know, I, I think that sort of quote resonates with all of us. There are times where we give it our best shot. When we do our best, we plan a church, we go build a relationship, we do what God tells us to do. And yet it seems like God is knocking us down. It seems like life is unfair. I think as Christians that we all feel at times we just want to give up. We want to stay down. Uh, one pastor named Warren Rearsby many years ago said this, that dis- discouragement is no respecter of persons. In fact, discouragement seems to attack the successful far more than the unsuccessful. For the higher we climb, the further we fall. You guys ever feel that? It's like, like life is supposed to be easy when, when, when you're making more money. Life is supposed to be easy when, when you have a house and you're married. But the more we have, the more discouraging life becomes. And so today I want to spend a, a few moments just talking about that. And, and how do we deal with discouragement? Because this message for me has given me, or this passage in scripture has given me, the courage to continue on. Because there may be many times as a pastor I would wake up on Monday morning and say, okay, I'm going to write my resignation letter. That was a lousy sermon. You know, this person doesn't like me. Uh, something happened yesterday, a conflict, and I'm just like, why am I even doing this? And I remember, even as a young pastor, wrestling through that. And so today, uh, as we look at this uh, passage of Scripture, um, and let me just give you a background before uh, of this passage before I read the text. Paul is going through a very discouraging time. By the way, 2 Corinthians uh, is... Uh, written in response to what had happened. When Paul had written the first letter to the Corinthian church, called that First Corinthians, he had, he had been very direct. It was almost like a parent disciplining his child. He had written about some of the immaturity that the church was going through. They were competing with each other. They were saying, well, I follow this guy. The other, I follow that guy. So there, there was a sense of territorialism that I'm, I'm, of, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And, and the church was fractured. And not only was the church fractured, people were complaining or people were elevating the wrong things. Oh, I have better spiritual gifts than you. Uh, I could speak in this language. I could do this miracle. And people were sort of segregating themselves and sort of putting themselves on different layers. They were saying, I'm better than you because of this. And then another part that happened that was kind of discouraging for Paul was he had heard rumors that somebody who was in leadership was having an affair with his stepmother. And it was like, what are you guys doing? So he writes First Corinthians in response to all the sort of the, the sin and the immaturity and the carnal sort of uh, response of what the church was doing. And you would think that when you write that kind of letter, you have one or two responses, right? The first response is one of repentance and saying, I'm so sorry, Paul. You know, we need to change our ways. We need to grow up. Uh, or the second response is one that says, Paul, you're... You're wrong. You you you, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, for some in the church, that's how they responded to Paul. So instead of acknowledging the sin, they start saying, Paul, you're, 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 you're really a charlatan. You're taking our money and you're using it for yourself. They were actually making false accusations. They were even saying to Paul, Paul, you're not even an apostle. You're a false prophet. Imagine how if you as a parent, you spend all your life investing in your children... And you give them the best, whatever you can give them, education, uh, opportunity. And they grow up when they're an adult and they look at you and say, you gave me nothing. How would you feel as a parent? You would feel devastated. Well, that's how Paul must have felt. And so at that point, there is this emotional kind of draining that took place. And so when Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, he's writing in the, in the context of that. And not only is Paul dealing with the church issue, he's also dealing with the persecution of the world around him. The Roman Empire was was out to get Christians, and they were persecuting them. And and so Paul felt so much discomfort, so much suffering. And so he actually begins 2 Corinthians with this sort of uh, acknowledgement of who God is. And he says this in verse 3, Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the Father of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received. In many ways, I think Paul is writing this letter as God is reminding Paul that life is hard, that life is uncomfortable, that life is discouraging. And then in verse eight, he begins to write sort of the, how do you then deal with this? And then he says, let me just read this section for you. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, regarding the affliction that happened to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of living. And Notice this in verse 9. Indeed, we have felt the sentence of death has been passed against us, so that we would not trust ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a great risk of death, and he will deliver us. And we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Notice the early part of verse 8. He begins to kind of share, kind of open himself up to sort of the affliction that is happening. And and this uh, early verse reminds us there are certain facts about discouragement. And if if you were sort of uh, think about this, number one, the first fact of discouragement is this, that it can happen to anyone at any time. He says this, that this, I do not want you to be unaware of what happened to me. In other words, Paul himself was afflicted. Paul was discouraged. Paul was afflicted, Paul was in despair. And if this can happen to the Apostle Paul, it could happen to any one of us. You know, I think there's sort of a, a myth that, that we as Christians sort of believe is that, that if we become a follower of Christ, that life should be easy. Or that God has to bless us, or God has to make us healthy, or God has to make us wealthy. And we sort of cling on to that, that after we trust Christ, why is our life so much hard, How, so much harder? In reality, there's no promises like that. There is no guarantee on this earth that that, that we're going to have prosperity. Ultimately in heaven, yes, we will gain what God has called us to gain, which is eternal life. But here on this earth, there's no guarantee for anything. And so, number one, it can happen to anyone at any time. And sometimes the most discouraging time is when you're most fervently trying to serve the Lord. I think about in the Old Testament, there was a guy named Elijah, right? Elijah's, uh, it was one against 800. <laughs> and it's this great scene in which, uh, basically all these prophets of Baal challenge, uh, Elijah and Elijah challenges them and said, let's see whose God is the real God. And in this great battle, right, where it's Elijah against all these false prophets, you guys know the scene, right? Where, uh, they have two, uh, uh, sacrifices to see which one would actually be, uh, uh, the fire would come down from heaven. Well, the prophets of Baal, it's, it's kind of a funny story if you really read it because they're, they're cutting themselves, they're dancing, they're, they're all doing all these things and nothing's happening. And so Elijah says, okay, let's see which God is the true God. So why don't you guys do this? Why don't you get as much water and let's drench this thing. He, he wants to kind of rub it in. He wants to make sure that this is really of God. So they drench this cow and then Elijah prays and guess what happens? Fire comes down from heaven. Boom, sacrifice happens, right? Now, you would think that with that type of spiritual victory, that Elijah would be like just excited about it. And he could do anything. But the next day, Queen Jezebel, Ahab, heard about this. You know what they said? They started doing is, is, is they started pursuing Elijah. And Elijah becomes fearful. And he runs away. And it's that moment he becomes so depressed. And I realized that's sort of fact of life, isn't it? That oftentimes uh, after a pinnacle spiritual moment, there's this great sort of the valley experience. This happens even when we go to retreats. You go to a retreat, you get spiritually high, and then you come down and you realize, man, you get fired from your job or you have conflict with somebody or, or, or your church member leaves. And it's like, that's not what you signed up for. You thought that life would become easier. But in reality, life can be challenging. When I was 22, I, I, I rarely share this story because, you know, we only want to share stories of our successes. We want stories, stories of our failure. But when I was 22 years old, I had graduated from seminary. And a, a Korean pastor came to me and said, this is way back when, when um, he said, we have a new vision. What if we started a church where it would be a bilingual church? I will speak in Korean, and you will do the ministry in English. And I had just graduated from seminary, so I was young. I was enthusiastic, I was passionate. And I said, sure, let's do it. And so he started his Korean service. I started my English service. And, and I, and I did know a lot of people. I was still single. So I, I started gathering all my single friends. I went to every one of them. And I said, hey, can you come and be a part of my new church plan? Uh, we we're starting this really interesting model, bilingual, bicultural model. And so all my friends uh, said yes. And I remember I was, uh, we were having our first like, Saturday night gathering to cast a vision. Uh, and we had 12 people. And I said, 12 people? That's great. That's how much Jesus started with. So, so I, I'm on the right track. <laughs> so we had 12 people. And we, so we were worshiping. And I, so everybody said, well, this is great. We're going to be back next week. Well, next week, we had six people. The following week, we had three people. And finally, it was just me, myself, and I, uh, just one person. And I remember it was one of the most darkest moments of my life. 22 years old. Went to seminary. And I remember when nobody came, I said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? I promised to serve you. I promised to give my life to you. I went through the seminary degree for you. And in my mind, I had this expectation that somehow that God would have to bless me because I decided to do what he wanted me to do. Looking back on it, it sounds so selfish, doesn't it? Self-serving. I was, I was immature. I didn't realize. But I remember at that moment, I decided to give up ministry. I, I went to my room. Um, You know, I turned off all my lights. Um, You know, I had a party for myself, a pity party. (laughs) And I started literally getting angry at God. But I remember that moment being one of the most formative moments for me. Because I I experienced something. Really, it wasn't about God. It was about me and my misunderstanding of who God was. God never promises us an easy life. And I remember uh, waking up um, on the... Um, my uh, uh, sort of on top of my bed was a bookshelf and there was a catalog from a seminary in uh, from Dallas and I decided you know I just need to get away from California so I packed up all my belongings I applied for this other seminary I had already graduated from seminary but I went to this other seminary but I went to this seminary not for the education but I needed to get away and I remember that that was one of the greatest things that happened to me is that in some sense I needed to find myself in God and what he was doing. I need to enjoy who he was. And so I just want to encourage you that the discouragement, it doesn't matter where you are, what level you are, that it can happen to anyone at any time. And secondly, here's the thing. If you let discouragement get a hold of you, it can paralyze your spiritual life. Notice what he says here in verse eight. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers About the hardships that we suffer in the province of Asia. And then he says this in the next verse, we were under such great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Uh, In the Greek, the word great pressure is the idea, is the illusion of a wearied animal that sinks into despair under the burden beyond its strength. Think about uh, yesterday, uh, Steve took me to the zoo because I told him I haven't seen a kangaroo. I, I expect the kangaroos to be everywhere in Australia. So Steve said, there's a place called a zoo that you can actually see a kangaroo. So, so we went to see a kangaroo yesterday. And when you walk around the zoo, you know, what? one of the great things about a zoo is you see all these animals. You see a leper. You see, uh, uh, you see we saw, a ti- well, th- we didn't see the tiger. He was supposed to be there. But think about this. Think about going to a zoo. And you have an animal, and the animal is locked in a, a cage, a very small cage. And imagine if that cage was sort of compressing on that animal. That's the idea of great pressure here. It's the idea of an animal that's under such great pressure, far beyond its ability to endure. That's how Paul is describing a situation. Paul is saying this, that, that, that all the afflictions, all the difficulties, all the hardships... That he felt he was under such great pressure that he felt like he was suffocating. And I think for a lot of us, sometimes we feel like that. You know, we feel like you just want to give up. We can't even breathe anymore. You hyperventilate. And and I think one of the dangers of that is that when you are in that state, your spiritual life can become paralyzed. Hudson Taylor, who took the gospel to China, China, was so feeble during the closing months uh, of one of his journeys. He he wrote this. He says, I am so weak that I cannot read the Bible or can't work anymore. I can hardly pray. I can only still, uh, lie still in my father's arms like a little child in trust. I think there are people who feel like that. They're just paralyzed. And here's the sad sort of kind of reality of what happens to a lot of people who are under such great pressure. Instead of running to God... They run away from God. You know, I I know a lot of people that, uh, I remember this young kid who was um, uh, a junior high, uh, middle school student, and we all looked at him. He was like 12, 13 years old. We said, man, this guy's going to be a future leader, a future pastor. So gifted. He was leading his junior, middle school group. And one day, um, uh, uh, the following year, I I hadn't seen him. Uh, He was at another church. And I said, hey, where is this so-and-so? And the youth pastor said, oh, he doesn't come to church anymore. I said, what happened? He says, his parents got a divorce. And I said, wow, so how is he dealing with it? And the response was, well, he decided if that's the way God's gonna treat him, he's gonna leave the church. And I think there are a lot of people like that where they come to a point of crisis spiritually and they realize, do I, do I really believe in this God or maybe, I, maybe this God is, is, is maybe a myth that I've made up. And so that point of crisis is a critical juncture for all of us. And it could either per, uh, paralyze us or it can propel us. And for Paul, that's how he felt. So notice the wording in this. He goes this, uh, we were under such great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. And then notice the next consequence, n- the next step. He said that it led to depression and even de- uh, despair. Notice what he says. He, he felt like he was going to die. Far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Now here, Paul is not talking about giving up on his life. He's not, he's not suicidal. But he's recognizing that this is so painful. That he's under such great despair. That, 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 that heaven seems better than the present. You know what I'm seeing, uh, in, in the States at least, and, and I think it's, it's maybe even happening here in Australia as well, in Western civilization, is that we have so much abundance. We have so much wealth, but we also have so much despair. You know, we have kids in the U.S. who are taking their lives and, 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 and basically they're filming themselves doing that on Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever. And they're talking about giving up when they have so much, they have plenty. And yet here's the challenge of life is that when the more we have, the more despair and, and depression that we face. You know, depression is, is a serious issue, and it's, it's becoming more of an uh, issue in America. And I, I think a lot of the challenges that the U.S. is going through has to do with people that, that really are. And, and when you go through this period of depression, you're, you know, you talk about mental illness where you sort of give up on things. By the way, depression is not a new thing the ability to deal with depression actually can actually propel our faith. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was one of the great preachers in the 19th century in England. Did you guys know, if if you ever read his biography, there's one story that just would shock you. Spurgeon, one of the most amazing communicators of the Bible. Every Monday morning, he would wake up wanting to die. He said this in his book, I am the subject of depression of spirit, so fearful that I hope none of you can ever go to the, such wretched extremeness that I go to. This man, a great man of God, faced this great sense of despair. But you know what changed Spurgeon around every week was his realization of the gospel. That God is the one who provides uh, us life in the midst of death. And the thing that I just want you to realize is this, that these, this is the pattern of the world. So, so imagine now if, if I were to say, okay, guys, let's close our Bible. Let's go home. Have a great day. <laughs> How would you feel? It's like, okay, uh, we know what the problem is. The problem is not, you know, the, all of us fall into this sense of despair and all of us feel paralyzed. And, and at some point, all of us feel like, like discouraged. It can happen to anyone. But here's the good news. And this is where I think Paul gives us the solution to the challenges. And if if you were to sort of write this in your Bibles or just in your margin or in your notes, um, I've committed this uh, to memory. I want to share share with you three things that Paul says that I think would change. Actually, four things that uh, will change your perspective when you feel like you're a failure, when you're discouraged in life. So look at verse nine again. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. If you just stop right there, That's where our culture is, right? We feel like we're living in this culture of death. But notice what he says in the next thing. He says, but, I love that. There's a word of contrast. He says, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but upon God. Do you notice what Paul is doing? He's saying, this is the pattern of the world. Discouragement, uh, being paralyzed, falling into despair, and even death. He says, that's what life is. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. But for a Christian, everything that happens has a purpose. And that's what he's saying here in the next verse. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened. In other words, there's purpose and reason. And the purpose and reason is this. That we might not rely on ourselves, but upon God. Maybe the failure and the discouragement and the difficulties of life is God's way of reminding you that you are trusting in the wrong thing. That maybe it's not your intelligence. Maybe it's not your background. Maybe it's not your family heritage. Maybe what you need to know is that everything becomes secondary. That you need to stop having confidence in the things that you possess. You see, we as Christians can live the Christian life apart from God. Based upon just our sheer will. If we wanted to. But that's not the way God wants us to live. Because God does not want us to rely upon our strengths and our giftedness. Rather, he wants us to rely simply upon him. And you know one of the greatest measures of the gospel is this. That God works most in our weakness. Not in our strength. Many years ago, there was a poem that I committed to memory that I say over and over again. It's called Treasure. It says this. One by one, God took them from me. All the things I valued most. Till I was left empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highway grieving in my rags and poverty. Till I heard his voice saying, lift up your empty hands to me. So I turned my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with the store of his own transcendent riches until they can contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my mind stupid and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands that were already full. Do you know why God has to strip away the things that you hold on to? It's because he wants to replace him with himself and with something that is better. And oftentimes when we are discouraged and we are falling into the sense of despair, what God is reminding us is that this happened so that we will not rely on ourselves, but upon God. You know, when I was at, um, after that traumatic experience of my first church planting, where, you know, we went from 12 to zero, um, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to leave California. So I got packed up my bags, went out to the school called Dallas Seminary, and I began to immerse myself in study. Now, I did something crazy, and looking back, it was like really, really crazy. Uh, In in, in my seminary education, uh, 12 units, uh, I don't know if they use units here, but uh, 12 units uh, was full-time. So I went to Dallas Seminary and I took 22 units. So, so I double whatever full-time was. And I just wanted to, I, I, literally, I, I was in such despair. I just think I would just want to lock into myself in my room. And, and, and so this was my second master's, and so you know, I was taking all these advanced the, theology classes, and, and I remember I had eight classes, and I had eight um, syllabus, and I remember the first week of school, you know, where the professor gives you, you know, the course assignments. And I had all these course assignments and, and I laid them down and I said, I'm not going to survive. There's no way I'm going to live. And, and I remember sitting in my um, uh, dorm room and looking up at the ceiling. And we had these little ceiling where you have these little holes on the top. And I started counting every single hole. <laughs> I was literally having a panic attack. I was like, where am I? Why did God do this to me? <coughs> and I felt even that, and this was God's stripping away process. And I said, God, okay, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And by the way, um, if, I, if they had a uh, PhD for procrastination, I would be, uh, that's what, that would be my, what my PhD would be. I love to procrastinate. I love the challenge of taking an exam, studying just like a few hours before. That, that, that was what I went to, you know, college and said, you know, I, could, I, I, I did kind of like pressure. Well, in, in seminary, in, in this Dallas seminary, 22 hours, there's no way I can do that. And so basically I felt like having a panic attack and didn't know what to do. And so the Spirit of God amazingly calmed me down. And he kind of settled my soul. And he said, this is literally what the Holy Spirit said. Is, Ray, I don't want you to be dependent upon your, your skills, your, you know, your whatever. I want you to simply depend on me. I want you to open up a notebook. And I want you to write down every single assignment every single chapter every single thing that you have to do for the whole semester so i took all the eight syllabuses and started writing out everything week by week and by the way that that's not my natural way of studying. and so and then the second thing the spirit of god said to me was um i want you to do the week's work but i want you always be one week ahead it's like I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. What is that? Why do I have to prepare in advance? And I did that. It was a a pretty amazing thing because I I wasn't, I was following the leading of the Holy spirit. And and as I was doing that, guess what happened throughout the semester? I was always a week ahead. And I remember at the end of the semester, I looked at my grades. I had all, all the best grades I've ever had. I had straight A's all the way through. And I said to myself, wow, not because I'm smart. But as the Spirit of God reminded me this, look, Ray, it's not about you. That this happened, that you may not rely on yourselves, but upon God. So let me challenge you or have you think about this. What are the things that, you're, that God is stripping away? You know, we have a word for that. We, have, we call them idols, the things that we depend on. And it could be a relationship that you have with somebody. You think, that's the person uh, that I want to marry. And then something happens and God takes that person away. Or it could be a job. Or it can be a pursuit of a degree. Or it could be a pursuit of a dream. And when God begins to take all those things away, you begin to question the reality of God. But what God is reminding you is not that dream or that person is the thing that you need to be dependent on. But instead, upon himself. And that God will ultimately lead you to where he wants you to go. Amen? See, this happened, that I might not rely upon ourselves. But here's the thing that he also qualifies. Notice the next part. And this is what I I think makes Paul's statement even that much more. He reminds us who God is. He says, but this happened, that we might not rely upon ourselves, but upon God. And then notice the qualifier. What is the next verse? Who raises the dead. This Sunday, this last Sunday was Easter, wasn't it? There's no greater Sunday for us because it reminds us that God is the God who can raise the dead. He's the God of the resurrection. And if God is the God of the resurrection, then guess what? If he can raise someone from the dead, he can raise you from whatever circumstances and discouragement that you're going through. Life will not keep us down. And when we get knocked down once, we get back up. We get knocked down twice, we get back up. We get knocked down three times, we get back. Because the resurrection power allows us to constantly get back up by the grace of God, that we realize that God is all powerful. Remember, one person said, "I uh, says I refuse to be discouraged. I refuse to be sad or cry. I refuse to be down." And here's the reason why: I have a God who's Almighty who's supreme and sovereign. I have a God who loves me and I'm on his team. He is all wise and powerful. Yahweh is in his name. He knows everything. My God remains the same. And I think about the power of God, that he is a God who is sovereign, who is supreme, who can raise the dead. So here's the question. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, can he not raise you from the lowest points of your life? Can he not raise you from the discouragement of, of pastoring and for leading and for guy, And I say, absolutely. But here's the next thing he says. Next verse. He continues on. He says in verse 10. Now I want you to notice verse 10. Paul does something very unique. He talks about deliverance, that he will deliver us. But notice how he does it. He uses three tenses. Past, present, and future. He says this, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us and on him we have set our hope. He will continue to deliver us. You know what Paul is reminding us? That God is not only the God who is so sovereign that he can take something that is dead and bring it back to life. He's also the God of the future, the God of the past, and God of the present. God knows all things. And here's what Paul is saying. He will deliver us. And he has delivered us. And we have hope that he continually delivers us. And here's the promise that I want to remind you guys. Because God knows the future, it changes our hope for the present. Let me ask you. Have you ever read a story... Well, you knew what the ending was going to be, or watched the movie. You knew somebody spoiled it to you. Like you, maybe at a, a, a movie theater, and somebody says, "This is what's going to happen." <laughs> they spoil it. They call it that uh, spoilers. You guys have spoilers, right? And don't you hate people like that because they tell you what the ending is going to be? But there's something about the end that, at least, okay, well, it's not as scary because this guy's going to survive. But here's the good news for Christians: we have the ending. We already know who's going to win. We already know who's going to be victorious. We know that ultimately Jesus will reign. He will conquer. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so it doesn't matter what happens in the present because we have a future assurance of what the end is going to be. You know, I, I was reminded of this uh, a few years ago. Many, about a decade ago. Uh, in Los Angeles, there was a... Uh, uh, this is sort of a, a, a myth, but th- there used to be a team called the Lakers that used to be really good. They don't exist anymore, but uh, <laughs> history tells us that one time the Lakers were really good. It really saddens my heart when I watch the Lakers now. Um, but the Lakers are an NBA basketball team. And I remember uh, watching the, uh, the Lakers. And, and every year they had this guy named Kobe and, and Shaq, and they would win championship after championship. One year, uh, the Lakers were in a Game 7 game and uh, it was a a, a game seven, and I I was actually on a plane coming from Chicago, which is in the uh, middle of the US, coming to LA, so I was gonna miss game seven. So I said, okay, I uh, I told my wife, would you record it? Put it on DVR, and so she was recording it. So as soon as uh, I would go home, I would watch the game, and and then I could see who won. Well, as we were landing from uh, Chicago to LAX, Do you know what the pilot said? (laughs) The pilot, as we were landing, said, you know, after we touched down, the pilot goes, congratulations, Los Angeles, you are the world champions. And I said, okay. I was happy, but I was sad because I couldn't, you know, I said, I know what the score was. So anyway, I went back home, I got in my car, and I started watching the game anyway because I wanted to see how the game progressed. Something weird happened. It was fourth quarter. Uh, the Lakers are actually down by 11 points. And one of their point guards, a guy named Derek Fisher, w- took a shot and he missed. And I started screaming at the TV. I said, the Lakers are going to lose. They're going to lose. Uh, I was so sad. They're going to lose. And then all of a sudden, it just hit me. The game's already been played. The game's already over. The score's already been done. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I think. It's not going to change the results. The result has already been determined. What I am experiencing was really what I was experiencing in life. Here's the good news for you as a child of God. Your eternity has already been determined. God has declared you a child of the king. He has already given you everything you need. And no matter how challenging life is, no matter how difficult it is, that all things work together for good. For those who love God, according to his purpose. And so when he says this in the, in the next verse, he says he has delivered us from such a day. Remind yourself of this. That the present hope is because of the future reality. Your present hope of deliverance is because of the future reality that God will deliver. Now some of you say, but, but does, does that mean that all the suffering will go away? Well, maybe not in this world. But ultimately, yes, you will be victorious. And so we cling on to that. But let me give you the last thing. And this is how we're going to close our time together. Paul does something that I think is very important. Because, you know, Paul is now, he's writing this letter to the church. And when he's talking about his discouragement, he's not just talking about himself and God. Notice what he says. You know what he asks for when he's discouraged? He doesn't ask for them just to you know, uh, you know says, hey, think uh, well of me and so forth. But notice, no, so he asks for prayer in verse 11. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks to the behalf of the, for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to, the, to your prayers. I love this. Last thing he says is this, that when he was discouraged... That he asked the community of faith, the people in Corinth, to pray for him. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about discouragement. And he says that you are not alone in this journey. That you, as you ask others to pray for you in in this moment of, of, of darkness. And here's the thing. If you are alone and you're dark, your mind can get really skewed to thinking you're the only that you're the only person going through that. But when you realize that there are others in the community of faith that are going through it, that as you pray together, you know what happens? That when God begins to answer that prayer and and gives lightness in the midst of darkness, then when that person goes through darkness, they will see if God answered that person's prayer, he can also answer mine. So here's the good news. Paul says this, that the number one thing... That he can ask for was that he can ask he asked for prayer and we're going to spend this latter part now we're going to pray for each other maybe some of you in your small groups you, you could break up and talk about your prayer your challenges but i'm going to share with you one last story and this is the miracle of god at the beginning i told you a word right uh you guys remember right Uh, I don't even know if I said it right. I probably did, but (laughs) it doesn't matter. Uh, For those of you who don't speak Korean, that's okay. That's good. So, um, (laughs) Ogi is is getting knocked down for for times, right? So, I was invited to speak at a uh, church in Korea. And uh, it was a a church that was a bilingual church. So, uh, I would preach in English and the the translator next to me would preach in Korean. Let me show you a picture of the, the person. Uh, the very last picture uh, so this young man his name is Chris was my interpreter oops oh it's gone okay so uh, I, I don't think it's transferred over well but uh, so Chris uh, who is a young guy was my interpreter so he was, he was speaking this so I was preaching actually this message right I was, I was talking about discouragement and so one of the illustrations I used at the beginning was the illustration of the boxer being knocked down getting back up so Chris was sharing that illustration. He was talking about the message. At the end, I had everybody break up into some small groups to pray. So I go toward the back. After the sermon was over, I go toward the back, and I, I pray with, uh, I, I look for some people to pray with, and I see uh, a group praying. And, and one of the girls in the back, and she's, she's crying. Uh, she happened to be actually Chris, the interpreter's wife. They had just been married about a few months. And so she was weeping and she was crying. And so I said, you know, you know maybe she, you know, God had spoken to her heart about something. And so, I, so as they were going around sharing, she said, Pastor Ray, can I speak with you? I said, sure. And she said, um, I just want you to know something. This is, this is a God thing, she goes. That person that um, was the boxer, that's my father. It's like, what? What? <laughs> You know, I, I used an illustration, and your dad was—is this olymp—you know, this world-class boxer? He became a Christian um, and, and became a believer. Uh, and but here's what happened: um, Chris and Brenda—Brenda Brenda is her name—they um, were about to be married. Chris's parents, the interpreter—he he's, he's, went to seminary. His parents are unbelievers, professors of a university. They did not look highly of this girl and her family background. Even though her dad was a, you know, kind of a famous athlete, they looked down on her. And the father said, if you marry, I won't even go to your wedding. So the father never showed up for the wedding. And so that pain had, got into the, had put a wedge in their relationship. And they were struggling because of that. And it was amazing what God did. He was preaching this message about not being discouraged while I was preaching it in English. He was translating At the end of everything, as we prayed, the pastor of that church invited her up, invited him up, and they started to kneel. And the whole church put their hand, about 100, came up, and we laid hands on them. We prayed for them, for healing in their marriage and healing. And I reminded, God reminded me of this. That everything he does is purposeful. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but yet God is sovereignly in control. And when we started praying, this weight of this burden that they were trying to fix this situation themselves, they realized no matter how hard they were knocked down, even her father (laughs) was knocked down four times who got up, that they were able to get back up. So here's my point God listens, God hears. God knows. And so I want you guys to recognize that and realize that the pain that you are dealing with is not just your own. That the family of God can pray with you. Amen. Well, let me lead us in a word of prayer. And then I'm going to invite the small groups to break up into your groups and then you guys uh, as well. And just share what God is speaking to your heart at this moment. And I want you guys to pray for each other and pray with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have no idea what you're doing sometimes. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because my perspective is limited. I only see the here and now. I don't see the future, and and sometimes I lose sight of the past. But Father, you are a God of the present, the future, and the present. That the discouragements that we face in life, the challenges, are, are, are not because you have something that you want to torment us or you want to punish us. But, but oftentimes, you allow us to go through these things to teach us, to mature us, to develop us. And it doesn't mean that it's easy. At times, it can be very hard. And so, Father God, I just pray right now for us. That you have a bright future ahead of us. And I look at this church, Lord, in this new season. But we know that it's not going to always be easy. And unless we deal with the pain of our lives now, it's going to be hard for us to move for the future. So, Lord, I pray as a community, as a family, that we would be able to share some of those things. What are the things that we just need to give back to you. But this happened that we might not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. So our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.